Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Recycle by Eurosport, the podcast that pitches its camper van on the mountain roads of cycling history to relive the greatest riders and races of the peloton's past. Brought to you by Zwift, where fun is fast. Recycle is written by Felix Lowe, narrated by me, Graham Wilgos, and produced by Pete Burton. In our previous episode, we remembered how Sunstroke, a bottle of wine, and a mid-stage snooze made Abdel Kader Zaf a household name at the 1950 Tour de France. In this episode of Recycle, we're riding with Eros Poli, a man renowned for being the tallest rider in the peloton, as well as for finishing last at the Giro d'Italia, while also piloting Mario Cipollini to multiple stage wins. On a sweltering day at the Tour de France, Polly went on the attack en route to Mont Ventoux. Here's the story of how some quick thinking, James Brown's I Feel Good, and a hot can of Fanta fired a giant up and over the Beast of Provence for a famous victory. When the cat's away, the mice will play. It's a mantra that often rings true in cycling, usually when a favourite crashes out of a big race and their rivals or teammates, usually employed entirely in their service, grab the opportunity with both hands. When Lion King Mario Cipollini was ruled out of the Tour de France in 1994, his not-so-rodent-like sprint pilot Eros Poli proved himself to be the mightiest mouse in the business. After two failed long-distance breakaways in the stifling Aquitaine region of France and in the Pyrenees, the Italian colossus soloed clear of the peloton on the oppressively hot Stage 15 from Montpellier to Carpentras. The profile of the 231-kilometre ride through Provence was wholly unremarkable, save for the almighty spike towards the end, the deathly climb up Mont Ventoux, and the descent down to the finish. If you're not familiar with the legend of Ventoux, here's a passage from the introduction to Jeremy Whittle's memoir to the mythical mountain. Visible from the Alps, from the Pyrenees, and from 35,000 feet, Mont Ventoux is a mountain so singular, so identifiable, that pilots flying south towards Italy and the Côte d'Azur use its bleached summit as a reference point. The vast, unmistakable bulk of the giant of Provence dominates the rolling landscape of the Drôme, 
and Valcluse regions of the south of France. The gruelling ascent has become one of the most feared and revered climbs in cycling. To Whittle, the inspirational and intimidating Von Thue is not merely one of the sport's most renowned ascents, it is the climb with the richest history and one that embodies both the grandeur and the darkness of professional racing. It is also a climb synonymous with some of cycling's greatest climbers, from Louison Bobet through to Chris Froome, via the likes of Charlie Gaulle, Eddie Merckx, Bernard Tevenet, Marco Pantani and Richard Veronque. So, how did a flat-track bully more readily identifiable with the Gruppetto manage to hijack this illustrious list of winners over the top of Mont Ventoux? After all, Whittle describes Polly with brutal honesty as an Italian lead-out man known for his abject climbing, whose imposing physique made him the least likely winner in a stage over the giant. The day after Italy lost the World Cup final to Brazil, when Roberto Baggio ballooned his spot kick in the penalty shootout, a weary Eros Poli creaked out of bed after a fitful night's sleep, feeling sorry for himself. But on the painful walk downstairs, the hotel lift was broken, a song came into the head of the six-foot-four-inch ruler, James Brown's I Feel Good. And as this tune went round and round in Polly's head, he soon became convinced that he did indeed feel good. Despite the prospect of tackling the Von Tue in temperatures of more than 38 degrees Celsius or 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Because the descent to Carpentras changed the character of the stage completely, the mountain test was no longer purely the domain of the climbers, and this gave Polly hope that he could perhaps pull off the unlikeliest of survivals. It was a great day, a beautiful day, Polly says, 27 years after his career defining moment one of the three most important races of my life. My gold medal in the Olympic Games, the World Championships team time trial in 1987 and the Von Two stage of the 1994 Tour de France. Who was Eros Poli? One day before his 21st birthday, a statuesque Tyro from Veneto in northern Italy won a gold medal in the team time trial at the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. It was the highlight of Eros Poli's amateur career, and while Italy could only take fifth place at the next Games four years later, Poli won a bronze medal in the team time trial at the World Championships in 1985, a silver in 1986, and then gold in Valak, Austria, in 1987. Polly had taken up cycling as a teenager after the oil price shock of 1973 hit Italy head-on. A ban on car usage over the weekends saw Polly's father buy a bike for himself and for his son, and the lanky adolescent was soon riding for the local youth team. After his Olympic success, Polly invested the money he earned in opening up two bars in Vicenza, having toyed with the idea of using his engineering degree and going to work in the regional power station. When Polly finally turned pro in 1991, his own powerful engine was a key component in the Del Tongo, GBMG Maglificio, Mercatoni Uno and Seiko trains that launched Mario Cipollini to countless sprint victories. 
In his debut Giro in 1991, all 6 foot 4 inches and 84 kilograms of Polly helped pilot Super Mario to three stage wins. He would lay the groundwork for Chippo to go one better a year later, while Polly himself finished last in the overall standings, some four hours and 40 minutes down on winner Miguel Indurain, a rider whose moniker Big Mig seemed faintly ridiculous when he stood alongside his Italian counterpart. Quizzed by CycleSport around this time about what he would like his epitaph to be, the affable Italian said, Here lies Eros Poli, famous for being tall and coming last at the Giro d'Italia. It's fair to say that, had the magazine returned with the same question a couple of years later, they'd have got a very different answer. And rightly so. But going into the 1994 tour, it's no exaggeration to say that Polly's name was on no one's prediction card for stage 15 to Carpentras. Indeed, besides his role as Cipollini's pilot, Polly was the patron of the Gruppetto during tough, mountainous stages. In fact, his ability to ensure all the stragglers reached the finish within the cutoff time led Chris Boardman to nickname him the bus driver. If Polly arrived at the Grand Depart still seeking his first major professional win, his chances of personal glory were elevated by the promise of a freer role in the absence of Cipollini from the Mercatoni Uno team. It would be the final year the Vuelta was held in the spring, and the Lion King's plan had been to condition himself in Spain before withdrawing so he could take part at the Giro. But on the opening road stage in Salamanca, Cipollini suffered a horrific crash when he was driven into the barriers by his own teammate, Adriano Baffi. The latter won the stage, celebrating with gusto, despite looking over his shoulder to see Cipollini sprawled flat out on the road as a result of his actions, before being duly demoted. It was this crash that increased the calls for the removal of barriers with legs that encroached onto the road, plus the mandatory use of helmets. Besides a nasty knock to the face after bouncing off the tarmac, Cipollini broke his shoulder and missed five months of the season, the Italian stallion reduced to watching both the Giro and the Tour from his hospital bed. And so it was that Polly was part of a weakened Mercatoni Uno team that arrived at the Tour with Silvio Martinello, another sprinter, as their leader. Martinello would not win a stage, but did finish second behind Jamaluddin Abdujaparov in the green jersey standings. The 81st Tour de France was played out in fierce heat that quickly took its toll on the peloton as a virus swept through the field and caused riders to drop like flies. By the time the race was ready to face Von 2, a quarter of the field had already withdrawn, including the likes of Greg LeMond, Gianni Bugno, Tony Rominger, Claudio Chiappucci and Steve Bauer, as well as prologue winner Boardman and a certain Lance Armstrong. The young American world champion had struggled to replicate his winning form in the rainbow jersey from San Sebastian on the sweltering roads of France. After the 22-year-old was caught by Indurain on the 64-kilometre time trial to Bergerac, Armstrong told reporters, It's over. It's finished. The way that guy came by. Armstrong trailed off and wouldn't take to the start of stage 15, citing fatigue and the need to prepare for the Worlds, where he would finish 7th in Agrigento in the defence of his crown. 
This decision earned him some scorn from the commentator Phil Liggett, who opined, What he should have done, really, is go into the mountains for the next couple of days and get the feel, because now he's abandoned two tours de France, so mentally he's going to start remembering that. Little did Phil know what was to come. At this point of the 1994 tour, only three of the original 21 teams still had their full complement of riders, including Indurain's Benesto. Seemingly impervious to the infection doing the rounds as he was to everything else, the Spaniard was left without an obvious rival. He allowed Richard Veronk to win at Lutz Ardiden and take the polka dot jersey, but the young Frenchman trailed him by eight minutes on GC. The attrition rate was reflected in what was the fastest average speed of any tour ever raced at the two-week point. That tour was hard, Polly recalls. Long stages every day and very hot. To add further context, the 231km stage to Carpentras was only the fifth longest of the race. One day after the 270km stage 6 to Rennes, the longest of the race, Polly had already tried his luck in a solo break to Futuroscope. He was caught 20 kilometers from the finish, despite building up an 18-minute gap. Then, after the only rest day of a particularly gruelling tour, on the stage to Lutzardiden, Polly rather ambitiously joined Frenchman Thierry Marie in a move over the Perisord and Col d'Aspan before being dropped on the Tourmalet. Another good training day, he jokes. Two days later, it was the World Cup final after yet another 200-kilometre stage, from Castres to Montpellier. I remember the stage. It was a Sunday and Rolf Sorensen had won, says Polly. It was a very long and hot stage in the south of France. Many riders went home because everyone was sick with gastroenteritis. There were so many troubles because it was so hot. I finished the stage exhausted and went straight to the swimming pool and jumped in with my kit on, just to survive. I remember the cigale, the crickets, being so noisy and we had no air conditioning in the room. My teammate John Tallon, the Dutchman, took his mattress and put it down on the terrace to sleep. He slept outside because it was too hot inside the room. Unable to drop off, Polly turned on his TV to watch the World Cup final which was being played in California, and saw Baggio miss the deciding spot kick to condemn Italy to defeat against Brazil. After the heartache of losing a penalty shootout, it was nearly 2am by the time he closed his eyes. You can imagine the next morning, I woke up and I was completely f***ed, Polly recalls. Then it was breakfast, but the lift was broken, so we had to use the stairs. And the first two stairs, my legs... Oh my god, so painful, like piranha bites everywhere. But that moment I started singing a song in my head. James Brown, I feel good. I feel good. I don't know why I woke up with that song in my mind, but throughout the day I had it going round and round in my head. So when I attacked later on, I was still singing the same thing in my head. And I felt good. If you'd tuned in to ESPN's live coverage of the 15th stage, you would have heard Adrian Carsten, 
the suspender-wearing sideline reporter deliver this pithy synopsis for what was in store. 137 miles from the seaside city of Montpellier to Carpentras. A few sprints to get him going, then someone mentioned there might be a mountain in there or something. You want to know what these guys are going to go through to Vontoux? Let's say you finish a light breakfast, then jog on down to your health club to start a workout around 10am. Get on a stationary bike, set the controls to the toughest level and don't stop until 3 in the afternoon, five hours later. Then you can get off, run over to the Stairmaster again on the killer level and go for an hour. Six hours after you started, now you can take a break. That's what these guys are going to go through for 22 days in a row. Phil Liggett does that much, pretty much every day. It was some intro for the voice of cycling. Once again, it was a real sweat fest, the third consecutive 100 degree Fahrenheit day, with the mercury peaking at 104 or 40 degrees Celsius for what was a record that tour. Some more context. When Tom Simpson died of, among other things, heat exhaustion on Vontu in 1967, the temperature was in the mid-twenties. With the riders perhaps fearful of the mountain ahead, the pace was understandably sluggish in the peloton after the official start, with not much action until Abdu Japarov won the first intermediate sprint ahead of the feed zone, where it all kicked off. For Polly, that day was all about survival. He had ridden Vontu once before in the previous year's Paris-Nice, but only up to Chalet Reynard. He went over the top three minutes behind the lead group then, and it was his teammate Cipollini who, believe it or not, went on to win the stage in Marseille. There was only one rule for me. Try to survive, says Polly. It was easy to survive because there was just one big climb at the end. But an attack from a fellow Italian from his former GBMG team made things much more difficult. I was pissed off with Davide Cassani, who attacked in the feed zone, he recalls, showing an admirable command of English expletives. That was so f***ing hard. It was 40 degrees and everyone needed water and Cassani attacked in the feed zone. We were like, come on, really? Every day, his GBMG Maglificio team attacked in the feed zone. Why? So that day, nobody could drink and nobody could take water from the cars. To make matters worse, Polly was off the back when it happened after answering a call of nature. I had stopped to pee when Cassani attacked, he continues. It was just a couple of kilometres from the feed zone at 50k, where you're allowed to take on water from the cars. It was still another 170k to the finish. So, I'd stopped and I was riding back to the peloton before the feed zone, but I couldn't stop because Cassani had attacked. F it was crazy. He managed to claw his way back to a rampaging peloton that was both says Polly, nervous and angry. A flurry of attacks and counter-attacks came to nothing, and then the bunch eased up and the road was blocked by a line of riders at the front. But I was coming from behind with speed and I wanted to attack, Polly explains. There was no space to pass the group, 
so I rode around on a small section of cut grass on the right of the road for about 50 metres. I was riding f***ing fast from behind, about 50 kilometres per hour. Then I said to myself, don't break, don't break, and I jumped on the grass, then jumped back onto the asphalt. Then it was head down, full gas. I was able to do a really big gap. In one kilometre, it was one minute. The fact that the move came so far from the finish and from a man not remotely renowned for his climbing ensured the peloton was happy to give Polly as much rope as he needed to hang himself. Everybody thought, it's okay, it's Polly, let him go. He's not dangerous, Polly laughs. Everybody knew me. I was always the first to be dropped at the beginning of the mountain because I was always too heavy. They must have thought I was mad. This would explain why no one had a similar death wish and Polly was left to his own devices. Not that he would have welcomed any company. No, no, no. I wanted to go solo, he admits. It was probably the secret to my success. Something else that worked in Polly's favour were the conditions, which engulfed the peloton in a kind of stupor once the crazy tall guy had gone on his suicide mission. The 30-year-old took refuge underneath a yellow casquette, from which, as was his habit, he'd cut out the top part, leaving just the elasticated headband and the peak to shade his eyes from the fierce provincial sun. One early stumbling block was a lack of fluids. Kasani's attack having prevented Polly from taking on any water in the feed zone. With his team car still behind the peloton, he raised his hand for the neutral support car to request some water, but the Mavic vehicle didn't have any either. So, okay, no problem. I'm a grinter. I never give up, Polly recalls. Then, one minute later, the car came back. Hey, Eros, you're lucky. Behind the seat we found a can of Fanta. But be careful, it's f***ing hot. I was like, it doesn't matter. Give me the f***ing Fanta. I remember, it was really hot, but I still squeezed every last drop from that can with my fist. It went everywhere, but it was amazing. That hot Fanta was the best Fanta in my life. Soon enough, Polly was joined by his Mercatoni Uno team car, which was being driven by his topless director sportif, Antonio Salutini, in a way only Italians of a certain age in certain temperatures can really get away with. Polly recalls drinking profusely that day, especially Coca-Cola. Salutini was like, not too much cola, Eros, you'll be sick. And I was like, give me the f***ing Coca-Cola, trust me, it's my problem. I didn't drink that much water, except sparkling water. I like the bubbles, they give me more pleasure to drink. I remember saying, give me sparkling water or something fizzy. A heat haze concealed the summit of Mont Ventoux that day, but it still loomed large in Polly's consciousness. Experience told him that he needed perhaps as much as a 25-minute advantage going onto the mountain if he wanted a chance of winning the stage although he still wasn't contemplating such a scenario as he passed through Carpentras with a gap of 22 minutes on the peloton. ESPN's live coverage crackled into action 
as Polly rode up the home straight and through the finish line area that would be revisited in just under 80 kilometres. In the commentary box, Phil Liggett was still adamant that the giant on the horizon would be the stumbling block for the giant in the saddle. Paul Sherwin, too, was not overly optimistic. Eros Polly is a fantastic rider on the flat, as you can see just by looking at the shape of his body. He's a rider with a lot of strength, but unfortunately, because of his size, he's a very tall, heavy rider. Once he gets onto the slopes of Mont Ventoux, he's going to have a very hard time. It may well be that these 20 minutes get wiped away just as soon as the road goes uphill. Polly's calculations were one minute for every kilometre of the 22-kilometre ascent, plus a few minutes leeway for the descent in case of a flat tyre or mechanical issue. In the event, his lead was 25 minutes and 27 seconds as he entered Bedouin, with compatriot Mario Mantovan around 16 minutes behind. The Carrera rider would hold that gap all the way to the finish, albeit dropping a further 47 positions back. Polly recalls riding the climb with great pain in his shoulder and on his back on the account of the 100km time trial he had effectively ridden to establish his cushion. If the first 6 or 7 kilometers of the southern ascent were, in his words, not so bad, then the difficulty started to come at the infamous left-hand turn to St Estevez, where the gradient ramps up into double figures during the claustrophobic wooded section of the climb. On this turn, the author Jeremy Whittle says in his book Von Two, it's a brutal bend, one that the French poetically describe as un petit unfair, a little hell. And it was here that Polly indeed found himself at the gates of Hades. That was a drama because I lost completely my cadence and rhythm, he says. For the first time in my life, the speed on my counter became one single number. Gruppetto speed is normally 15 kilometers per hour, and I saw sometimes 8 or 9 kilometers per hour. I thought, oh my god, I was so tired, and I thought I might fall off my bike, I was going so slowly. It's so hard, and there's no shade, you're always out in the sun. Despite the glare, Polly had removed his yellow visor and attached it to his handlebars, which he yanked with every exhausted pedal stroke as sweat poured off his face. Barely able to turn over the cranks, the exhausted leader looked terribly overgeared as he continued his battle with the mountain, and with only 24 sprockets on the back. You can almost feel the pain as he's labouring over his bike, said Sherwin. This is a man not used to such a mountain. He's such a big, heavy rider, he's really suffering to go to the top, and he's only halfway up. Behind, a few riders had struck out from the pack when they started the climb, but it was not until tour debutant Marco Pantani attacked in the woods that things really heated up. The Italian was in sixth place in the standings, but almost 12 minutes down on Indurain, who was on course to win his fourth consecutive tour by a far more considerable margin than the previous three. It's worth remembering, however, that the Spaniard, described as robotic and dead-eyed by Whittle, did not win the tour until his seventh time of asking. On the previous occasion the race had come up on to, a time trial from Carpentras in 1987, Indurain had shipped more than 15 minutes. 
a few riders went with Pantani, including the soon-to-be-crowned world champion Luc LeBlanc, fourth on GC at 8 minutes and 35, teammate of second place Richard Veronk. But Indurain, the Iceman, did not respond and instead sat on the wheel of Pascal Lino, another Festina teammate of LeBlanc and wearing the race's polka dot jersey. Showing few signs that it would be he who would eventually close the curtain on the Indurain era, the Danish powerhouse Bjarni Ries, meanwhile, was yo-yoing off the back as the main pack thinned down to a dozen riders and eight minutes were slashed from Polly's lead. Up ahead, Polly tried to keep his cool. I remember pouring so much water over my head and neck, he says. Then I got through the forest and arrived at Chalet Reynard for the short section of flat where I was able to take a break. It was very good and helpful. Then it was the last five or six kilometres, which are hard, especially the last two kilometres, which are terrific. The climb went so slowly, one kilometre at a time. It was so hard. Mantovan was caught and passed by teammate Pantani, who, in the days before helmets were compulsory and before he decided on his signature polished head to combat his prematurely thinning hair, looked like Reese's younger, smaller brother. As Pantani passed, Mantovan gave his water bottle to his compatriot. He was soon caught by the main pack after Indurain began to turn the screw. Emerging from the trees, the crown of hair to the bald pate of the giant, and travelling across the lunar landscape at the top of Vontu, the yellow jersey rode in a six-man group with Veronc, Lino, Leblanc, Armand de las Cuevas, the Frenchman from Castorama, currently third on GC, and Roberto Conti. Indurain later splintered this group with a dig in almost the same spot as Chris Froome's now infamous high-cadence acceleration 19 years later in 2013. Used to riding in the Gruppetto, where the focus was simply survival en masse, Polly found himself in an unfamiliar position. Being at the head of a race, with all eyes on him as he edged closer to the summit, his lead on Pantani slashed to less than eight minutes. I had a dream, because I was always the first to be dropped, but one day I wanted to be first to pass in the front, to see the people and fans saying, Go on, keep going, Eros. But I never imagined being able to win a stage in the mountains. So it was just a dream to one day pass in the front in the mountains, not the last. Then, it happened. Forced to swallow his words after earlier writing off the Italians' chances, Sherwin was now offering encouragement to Polly. You almost want to push this man, to help him to get over the top. He really is suffering. He's using all of his body, all of his power, the last little bit of energy that he's got to get over the top because then he knows he's going to plunge down for 25 miles to the finish. For his part, Liggett was full of praise. As he reminded viewers, Polly is an Olympic champion of the thoroughbred sort, the flat road, the team time trial when he was an amateur. Now he's gone and hit Mont Ventoux, one of the most feared climbs in any bike race, and he's climbed his way to the top. Hats off to him. This is really what cycling's all about, replied Sherwin, 
the commentating duo bouncing off one another as they would go on to do for the next two decades. It's courage, it's fighting, it's getting the best out of yourself even when you think you're going to get beaten. Every man was scared of Von Tu this morning, but Polly was the one who took it on his own shoulders to get out there, build up his lead and hope he could hold on for victory. After one last effort around the final steep hairpin bend below the meteorological station on the summit, Polly went over the top and felt the weight of the world disappear from his shoulders. He took a swig of water, poured the rest over his head, zipped up his jersey, and then embarked on the 22-kilometer descent to Mola Sen. He had just become the first Italian to reach the top of Vontu in pole position. Pantani followed some 4 minutes and 31 seconds later before Voronk consolidated his polka dot points tally by leading the yellow jersey group over the highest point, almost 6 minutes in arrears. Phew, Polly says. It was done. Of course, the stage was still not won. The finish remained 42 kilometers away back in Carpentras. I knew that everything could still happen on the descent, Polly says. Maybe I had pushed too hard up the hill. Maybe I was too tired. If you have a problem with descending, it's usually because you're tired and you make a mistake. I was very focused. But descending was never going to be a problem for a man of Polly's size. I remember the car coming up to me and saying, hey, take it easy, slow down, because it was really fast. There's a long section of descent in a long line at 11%, where I think I hit 100 kilometers per hour. In Von 2, Whittle describes what faces a rider on their way down towards Morlesen, a descent that the peloton will tackle on stage 11 of the 2021 tour. The north side soon slings you through a succession of tight hairpins, where it's necessary to almost come to a halt, before accelerating again. The first couple of kilometres downhill track back and forth across the white rock, an expansive view north towards the Drom and the distant Alps distracting your eyes away from the road, bends rushing up to meet you. Later, beyond the ski resort of Montserrat, the bends disappear and the road becomes more like a runway. It was here, in the pursuit of Polly, that Pantani did his stomach-on-saddle, bum-on-back-wheel party trick at speed, a new style of descending that was not only dangerous but would earn an instant disqualification under the new rules governing the sport today. But for all his daring do, the pirate was making no ground on his compatriot. Near the back of the pursuing group of favourites, Indurain had a heart-in-mouth moment of his own when his back wheel fishtailed on the hot tar and he was forced to unclip, taking a bend very wide and kissing the grass verge. The race leader narrowly avoided going over the edge of the mountain and into the trees below. When you've got good form and you're in great shape, you've still got reactions to survive something like that. And Miguel Indurain certainly had that when he recovered from that little slide, said Sherwin. After the descent, there was still another 20 kilometers to ride back to Carpentras. But with half of that done, Polly still held a gap of more than four minutes on Pantani. 
he's only 24, despite his balding head, Liggett said, channeling his inner Alan Partridge as the diminutive climber was told to give up the chase by his director sportif. With Polly now riding to certain glory, Liggett decided to share a little anecdote from when he spoke to the Italian after his thwarted breakaway to Futuroscope in the opening week. He said, I'm going to do it again, and I'm going to get such a big lead that I'm going to have time to stop and find some pretty girls to have lunch with before getting back to the bike race, Liggett recalled. Well, that's what he told us. He's got 25 minutes today, and when he got to the top of Von 2, there were unfortunately no restaurants. But now he's going to get a stage win, and that will be a first. The emotion is getting to him. Indeed it was. Around five kilometres from the finish, a motorbike drew up alongside the lone leader. Seated behind the driver was Laurent Bezo, a former teammate of Greg LeMond, who was now in the first year of his new role, controlling the traffic along the Tours parkours. He said, Come on, it's okay, you have five minutes now. That was the moment I said, Okay, it's done. Now I can take the foot off the pedal and enjoy this. The significance of what Polly had done quickly set in. The last kilometre, I was imagining my family watching me on TV. It was a great moment, Polly says. I think that was the best moment, the last three kilometres, when I realised it was done. The TV with the motorcycle was just 10 metres from my face with the camera. I started crying. It was a very emotional moment. Such was his lead, Polly was able to milk the applause from the crowd along the home straight. The same fans who, more than two hours earlier, had seen the Italian ride through the Finnish town on a mission. If he was on the verge of the greatest win of his career, according to Sherwin, that wasn't saying much. Polly's only other victory since turning pro at the late age of 28 was in the lowly Mazda Alpine Tour in Australia two years previously, a race that, to all intents and purposes, was still an amateur event. But he had now done the seemingly impossible by winning a mountain stage of the Tour de France. This is incredible, gushed Liggett. This very, very colourful Italian never broke away to win. He broke away to survive. And my goodness, did he survive. It's no surprise that Polly made a show of it, riding to the finish with his arms aloft, before throwing his trusty yellow cap into the crowd and bowing to the supporters as he crossed the line, a decade after his Olympic gold medal. I wanted to do a musketeer salute, he explains. Like a big show when you go to a theatre and, at the end of the performance, there's an encore. It was like, thank you, everybody. Ciao. I hope you enjoyed my show. The French people loved the moment. They said it was the best finish ever. Nobody had done something like me before. This special thanks to everybody, then giving my hat to the public. Behind, the Italian Alberto Elli outkicked Lino and Conti for second place at 3 minutes and 39, before Veronque led home a group including the yellow jersey of Indurain exactly four minutes after Polly. Back with the mic, ESPN anchor Adrian Carsten delivered the final word on a surreal day in Provence. Eros Polly, at 6 foot 4 inches, feels like 10 foot tall tonight. Don't try and tell this man 
that a big man can't climb a big mountain. So, what happened next? The next stage, on another sizzling day on the tour, Polly rode alongside teammate John Tarlin in the Gruppetto up Alpe d'Huez, finishing fourth last on stage 16, some 34 minutes behind winner Roberto Conti of Italy. A day later, he was third last after a very hard stage that included 90 kilometers of climbing up the Glandon, Madeleine, and on to Val Torren. I went to the front to block the road with Frankie Andreo of Motorola, and we stopped all the attacks at the beginning because the Colombians all wanted to attack on the Glandon, Polly recalls. Anyway, we got dropped, and that day 50 riders were outside the time limit because it was a short ride with very big difficulty. A hasty overturning of the rules from the jury reinstated the majority of riders who were caught out, allowing Polly to roll into Paris third from bottom, almost three hours behind Miguel Indurain. The Spaniard's fourth straight victory in yellow was by an eventual margin of 5 minutes 39 over the Latvian Peter Ugramov, with Marco Pantani rising to third on his debut tour. Polly's numerous attacks, his solo escapes amounted to 340 kilometers in total, saw him win the Combativity Prize. But it was the Von II victory that ushered in a new chapter of his career and saw him followed by a race motorbike for the remaining Alpine stages of that tour, with live updates of his performances over all the peaks. It brought him notoriety and much attention, not least from adoring female fans who sent him flowers and cards. Speaking to Le Keep in 1997, Polly said, Everything began to change. I got letters at home. People wanted to touch me, to take my photo. Since then, I haven't won anything, but something of all of this has persisted. It was six years before Polly got to the top of Mont Ventoux again. This time, it was in a car, the day Pantani was gifted the win by Lance Armstrong, a year after the American had won the first of his seven tours that would subsequently be scrubbed from his Palmares. By this point, Polly had retired from cycling and was working as a TV pundit for Rai in Italy. I remember me and Marco were in the same hotel, he recalls. And after the stage, I walked past his room and he said, Hey, come in, Polly, come inside. I said, Ciao, Marco, congratulations. I'm happy you've won on Von 2 because now you've given more glory to my stage when I won. And he said, That day you were very strong because if you weren't strong, for sure, I was catching you. But I didn't catch you. So, you did a good job. Bravo. Fast forward another five years, and Polly finally took on the giant of Provence once again on a cycling holiday he organised with a group of friends from Verona. I organised a trip to do Ventoux with them, a big bus with 40 bikes and 40 friends, he explains. That was when I climbed Ventoux for my first time since my victory in 1994. So it took 11 years. For the past five years, Monsieur Ventoux, the giant's giant killer, has returned to the site of his unlikely victory every summer on an annual bike tour organised by the company In Gamba, for whom he works as a guide in locations such as California, Arizona and Vancouver. At the time of speaking to Recycle, Polly was moving into a new apartment in Valpolicella, 
a viticultural zone of the Provence of Verona, Italy, east of Lake Garda. Now 57, he is excited by the prospect of the 2021 Tour de France venturing not only back to Ventoux for the first time in five years, but doing so twice in one day, with a stage that features the gentler eastern approach from Salt, as well as the traditional ascent from Bedouin ahead of the same descent towards Morlosen for the finish. Polly says he will be glued to the TV screen, admitting that twice up Mont Ventoux in one day will be amazing. Could such an audacious move as that which saw the peloton's tallest rider hit the foot of the giant of Provence with a 25-minute advantage ever happen again? Is a 171-kilometre-long solo break even possible in a modern era driven by numbers and a surfeit of radio-led predictability? It all depends on the weather, Polly says. When it's a hot day on the race, people go hyper-fast then they stop the effort. And when they want to go fast again, they can't because the heat makes you lazy. If you go fast, you get good ventilation from the wind, but every time you stop, you're overheating. With that in mind, I took the right moment to attack. It was hard, but I had good speed and good ventilation. That was probably the secret, the heat. I might have been on my own in the breakaway, but the heat was my biggest ally. This has been another episode of Recycle by Eurosport, brought to you by Zwift, where fun is fast. Recycle is written by Felix Lowe and narrated by me, Graham Wilgos. Produced by Pete Burton. Edited by Chris Watts. You can read more from Felix on Twitter at Saddleblaze, and you can find me at Graham Wilgos. You can find Pete following Brad on a bike around France. Plus, you can follow Eurosport on Twitter at Eurosport underscore UK, or you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe, share and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. And join us for our next episode. We roll back to the 2006 tour when Floyd Landis blew away his rivals with an unbelievable solo breakaway win in Morzine to revive his bid for another American yellow jersey. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.